0: tonight we've been in the book of hosea for the last uh couple of weeks hosea is the book where we actually get to see the most about any other prophet in the entire bible including the the major uh prophets there's three full chapters dedicated uh to the life of hosea and hosea being very very personal uh we actually get a glimpse into his family life we know all three of his kids' names. We, we know his wife's name. And unfortunately, Hosea is having to deal with these horrific um, problems in his own uh, uh, marriage. In fact, what is the very first commandment that God gives to Hosea? A go and marry a wife who is going to be unfaithful to you. You're going to be my example to the people of Israel that have rebelled against me, an unfaithful people to God. And you're going to show them by being the example of a faithful husband to an unfaithful uh, wife. And then uh, last week in chapter 3, we we found out that he actually had to buy her, pay her uh, to live in the same house with him. I mean, that that just... Blows my mind. It's truly unfathomable. But we just came off of Easter, and and what do we celebrate at Easter? We celebrate the victory of Christ over death itself, and and the buying of us, the redemption of us on the cross. And you guys are here because you know. I mean, it's not as crowded as it was on Sunday or Friday, and that's understandable. There's not you know the the you know all the stuff that goes on, but but you understand if you've been as as Kat said, if you've been loved much, you understand what it means to reach out and be faithful yourself. You're being faithful, and I appreciate you guys for being here tonight. We're gonna to read the first seven verses of chapter uh, five. We'll pray, and then we'll get into this. Hear this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on Tabor, and the revolters have dug deep into slaughtering, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know Yahweh. Moreover, the pride of Israel answers against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek Yahweh. Uh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have borne children of strangers. Now the new moon will devour them with their portions and so fathers, we approach uh, this uh amazing book that's very at times very difficult to understand is we we read just in these seven verses. Uh, to understand a, a culture, a, 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 a nation, a people that are so far removed from us, not only on the other side of the world, but also with uh, thousands of years' distance in terms of trying to understand this culture, and then to try to apply it to our lives, and we, we may read this in our own devotions, and it's it, just difficult for us to understand and so, Lord, I ask that not tonight, that you would open up our eyes, that you would under, help us to understand uh, this passage, and then more importantly, that you would help us to apply it uh, to our own lives. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak clearly tonight, that you would be uh, have free reign amongst us, that you would... Help us to truly understand your word, your precious word that you, you gave to us. And, and just that, the privilege of coming off of Easter and all the celebration and all the, the privilege that every single day for the Christian is Easter. Every single day we can celebrate your resurrection. It's truly a privilege, Lord. The so Lord, help us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray amen and amen last week we we learned that uh, there's this word that's repeated more times in the book of hosea than in the other book in the entire bible it's this word ephraim in fact just in these seven verses we've seen it repeated over and over and over and over again it's one of those Words maybe that we kind of, you know, oh, that was that guy way back in the book of Genesis, the son of Joseph, or even if we remember that, or maybe that was one of the tribes of Israel. And, you know, sometimes we we have this hard um, idea that we try to grasp something, but we don't really understand it fully. And, And so to understand what this really means, we actually have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, in in Genesis chapter 48, and we're going to be seeing little glimpses of this chapter as we walk through uh, this section. In Genesis chapter 48, verse 1, and the words will be on the screen. Uh, We're in the the Legacy Standard Bible. We're going to see the the word Yahweh, the actual name of God being translated, Uh, especially in the minor prophets. It's very, very important to understand that. But in Genesis chapter 48, we learn about the two sons of Joseph. You guys remember Joseph, right? Joseph was the guy that was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Talk about a family feud, right? In fact, he was the favorite. He was given that coat of many colors. And what did his 10 older brothers do to him? They were jealous. They sold him into slavery, into Egypt. He rises up through the ranks. He now becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt. And and who has to come and buy food from him? Those same brothers, right? And rather than taking out a pound of flesh on his brothers, taking revenge upon his brothers, what does he do? Isn't that amazing? Great. Well, while he's there, He marries uh, the daughter of the priest of Egypt. He has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, now named Israel, blesses not only each of his own sons, but he specifically blesses the two sons of Joseph. Genesis chapter 48, verse 1. Now it happened after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. We are now introduced to Ephraim. Who is Ephraim and why is he so important in the book of Hosea? Listen to verse 2. Then it was told to Jacob, Behold, your sons, Joseph has come to you. So Israel strengthened himself, sat up in his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you an assembly of peoples. I will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. So now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Do you understand what Jacob is saying? Do you understand what Israel is saying? Though those two sons of yours, that they are going to become a part of me and my children. And in fact, if you go through the entire Old Testament, you will never see the tribe of Joseph. You will never see the tribe of Joseph. You'll see Reuben and Gad and, and Levi and Simeon, and all these other tribes, but you will never see the tribe of Joseph. Why? Because as we're going to read in the very next verse, he gets two portions, and his sons become tribes. Wow. And so now you have the, the tribe of Manasseh, and you have the tribe of Ephraim. In verse 6 But your kin that have been born after them shall be yours, thus shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance so when you look at a map of israel or or an old testament map you you look at it and you see the division of land you see uh dan in the uh the top and you see benjamin down here in the bottom you see judah this big section in the middle and then you also see manasseh and ephraim ephraim being right in the middle by the way And so Jacob is going to do this amazing blessing with the two sons of Joseph. The older being Manasseh and the younger being Ephraim. We go back to Hosea chapter 5 and we look at this amazing section here I want you to look at verse 5 there. Moreover, the pride of Israel answers against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Why are there so many names in this one verse? Don't they all mean the same? And sometimes when we read the Bible, we just kind of assume that, well, this means this, and they're kind of synonymous together. You see, at this time, there's a divided kingdom, that there, there had been a time right after King Solomon died, that the kingdom was actually divided into two different parts. In, in fact, the history of Israel shows that the nation of Israel was divided longer than it was actually united. In, in fact, there was only 60 years that the nation of Israel was united under a single monarchy. 20 of those years was David, and 40 of those years was Solomon. After Solomon died, boom, civil war, division, everybody not liking each other. In fact, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, said, I- I'm going to you know, treat everyone harsher than my dad did, and 10 tribes leave. 10 tribes, all 10 of the northern tribes left following a guy by the name of Jeroboam. So these names are very important because Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south, and they're two separate kingdoms at this time. It's a divided kingdom, both having separate capitals, both having separate kings. In fact, as you know, all the the kings in the south live in Jerusalem and they all descend from the line of David, right? And we 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 know that, right? You know, that that's very common. But in the north in Israel every single one of the kings come from and the capital is in Ephraim in the city of Samaria. And that should be very familiar to Because you also see that in the new test. We'll see that more later on. Verses 6 through 7. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek Yahweh. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh. For they have borne children of strangers. How personal is this? Because we remember we read last week about the children of Hosea. Did he know that they were even his? He didn't even know that. But why? Because his wife had been unfaithful. His wife had literally slept with every single guy in the town. I mean, just absolutely horrific, right? Just totally unfaithful. And then then what does he have to do after she's used up? What does he do? He buys her back. And he writes this amazing poem in chapter 2 of wooing her back, uh, uh, romancing her back to him. After she had rebelled, after she had been unfaithful herself, he still had to be faithful to her. And, of course, the picture is God with us, right? And and God with the nation of Israel, too. The northern kingdom, Ephraim, as we see the comparison, too. Is God faithful to the unfaithful? When we understand that, when we truly grasp that, what does it do to our heart to those that are unfaithful to us? If God can be patient and faithful with me, an unfaithful person, how much more can I be to those around me? It truly puts it in perspective how How many years did God have to wait for you to come? thank you rich <laughs> by by the way, if you haven't met rich yet, he just got saved a couple of months ago. It was amazing. He's on fire. He's really growing uh hopefully he's gonna be baptized uh uh soon uh but but you talk with people that in the latter days of their life, sixty years or you know a long time, you know having a life where They constantly rebelled against God. Their their thoughts were always against God. And God was patient to them for so long. And, And then to understand that not only God was patient with them, but other people were praying for them for a long period of time too as well. And the privilege is that can I understand just a little glimpse of what God did for me. Can I have patience with those around me? Can I be faithful to those around me? Verse, uh, at the end there of verse 7, it says, Now the new moon will devour them with their uh, portion. Verse 8, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, make a loud shout in Beth-Avan. Uh, Behold, behind you, Benjamin, uh, Ephraim has become a desolation in the day of reproof. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is true. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like uh, water. We're going to see all these references to unfaithfulness, Not, not just in a marriage. But in life in general, have you ever had a neighbor? Hopefully, you've never had this, but have you ever had a neighbor that uh, maybe they were putting up a fence or uh, uh, something that was between the two? And, and, you know, of course, you know, the, the inching closer and closer and closer or, or making their property bigger and your property smaller. It, it, that's an unfaithful neighbor, right? That uh, They're trying to expand uh, their lot and make your lot uh, smaller. We would never stand up for that, right? Uh, and of course, this is the, the picture that we see, not only of the unfaithful spouse, but also of the unfaithful neighbor. What are they doing? They're trying to take advantage of the goodwill of other people. They're trying to take advantage of those that are supposed to be their uh, neighbors. What is God going to do? He's going to pour out his wrath. We're going to see this later on in the book. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to walk after man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rottenness to the house of Judah. Now it gets closer to home, by the way, and it's not just your property being moved, but what's now happening to your clothes? Uh, we we don't have these probably as as you know widespread nowadays, but but what happens when a moth gets into your closet? Yeah. What, what they they literally lay their eggs on a natural fiber, and what happens to that nice, expensive, beautiful coat that you once had? What happens to it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's lots of holes in it, right? And, and of course, you know, in the old days, we used to have mothballs. You know, mothballs in supposed to keep away the the moths. You know nowadays we just have fake clothes you know unnatural fibers right you know the, the moths don't like it right because it's unnatural they would never eat it you know but 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 in it you know in in traditional times this natural fiber it was attractive to the moths and especially in a culture where you know it, it you didn't have as much enclosed space or windows as much and and these moths were able to get in. What now happens to your clothes? Your clothes now become you know with holes in it right they They become unfaithful, right? What happens to your jacket when it's unfaithful? It lets the wind in when it's supposed to keep it out. What happens to your pants instead of covering you up but exposes you right you know all, all these things that happens when a piece of fabric becomes eaten or like rottenness to the house of judah what happens when something is rotten oh that beautiful piece of fruit right it, it, it looks amazing and then you cut it open and yeah it, it, it looks good, appetizing, but it's unfaithful. Or that tomato that you buy from the store, and it looks so red, looks so b- delicious, and then you cut into it, and it's mealy, and it's, you know, tasteless, right? It's unfaithful, or the, or the cantaloupe, or the melon, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It, it's something that advertises good, but inside it's unfaithful. This is how Ephraim was. This is how Israel was. This is how Judah was. Then Ephraim saw his sickness, Judah his sore. So Ephraim went to Assyria, as sent to King Jerob. But he was unable to heal him or to cure you of your sore. The description here is of sin, and it is not whitewashed. God uses the correct words. He calls it for what it is. Right? He called idolatry uh, adultery he he, he calls sin for what it is it is true uh, depravity it is true a disgrace against your very own soul it is rottenness to the core look at the words that are used here in these two verses chapter 12 or verse 12 verse 13 rottenness sickness sores moth holes desolate unfaithful neighbor not mincing word verse 14 for i will be like a lion to ephraim and like a young lion to the house of judah i even i will tear to pieces and go away i will carry away and there will be none to deliver i will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt seek my face and their affliction. And they will seek me earnestly. You see, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to try and make an alliance with the nation of Assyria. And at first, it's going to, you know, uh, pan out for a short period of time. But Assyria is going to take advantage of them. Going to break the covenant. And in 722 B.C., Assyria is going to come in and literally ravage the northern kingdom of israel so much so that when we get to the book of amos we're going to find out that they're going to be taken away captive with fish hooks and meat hooks in their cheeks just absolutely devastate. they're going to be taken away into slavery they're going to be scattered and when they come back they're going to be a mixed race people By the way, they're still going to come back to Samaria, too, by the way. They're going to be changed into a different name, though. You guys know that. Genesis chapter 48, verse 8, we're going to go back to, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given to me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless uh, them. By the way, uh, Joseph is is not with his brothers. Uh, his brothers are all going to be blessed in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 49. Uh, they're going to be individually blessed. And Joseph's sons now get the privilege as they're standing before their grandpa to be blessed by their grandpa. Look at what he does there in verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your seed as well, your children. Wow. Is that a blessing for any grandpa? But Jacob, remember, had given up hope even being able to see Joseph's face ever again because he thought he was dead, right? And, And now the privilege is he actually gets to kiss and hug his own grandchildren from Joseph. This is a very emotional time, of course. Hopefully you can see that in the text. Verse 12, Then Joseph took them from his knees Bowed with his face to the ground, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. Now, this may elude us a little bit, but the understanding is that the older son was supposed to get a better blessing than the younger son. So what does Joseph purposely do? He purposely puts the older son underneath the right hand of Jacob and, and the younger son purposely underneath the left hand of Jacob so that when they're, they're blessed, the right hand blessing, the, the greater blessing would go toward the older son. Verse 14, but, or, but Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And and this blessing now of the younger getting uh, the greater blessing, and the the older getting a blessing but a lesser blessing, the left-handed blessing, if you will, and this really, you know, uh, as, as we're going to see later on, even offends Joseph. It's the only time in the whole Bible where we actually see Joseph uh, going against his dad or, or saying something that would be uh, contrary to to his father. But but the understanding here, Jacob, in this blessing now. Uh, puts in place what happens for the rest of the Old Testament where now in the book of Hosea we see Ephraim representing the ten tribes in the north actually being the capital of the ten northern tribes. And God still keeps his promise of the blessing, by the way, despite the unfaithfulness of Ephraim. Wow. Look what it says there in verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. May my name live in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude. In the midst of the earth. What is the blessing for Joseph's son? That they're going to be equal with the other brothers. They're going to actually have tribes themselves. In fact, Ephraim's tribe will actually rival the tribe of Judah. So much so that the northern kingdom is synonymous actually renamed many, many times throughout the whole Bible, Ephraim. And it represents the entire northern kingdom of Israel because of the blessing that Jacob gave to Ephraim. Now, the question is, why doesn't God take back his blessing? They're unfaithful. Why doesn't God take back his blessing? Because God is always faithful. God always keeps his promise. We ask, well, well, I can just do whatever I want then. If you're truly a Christian, if you truly love God, would you ever do that? Would you even ask that question? There's a higher standard, right? When we come, we understand that we want to give our life. Not because of the, you know, what we think is, is, is a, you know, open door that we can do anything we want. No, because of the grace of God, I want to obey God. I want to obey Him. Continues on there, Hosea chapter 6. Verse 1, come, let us return to Yahweh. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has struck us, but He will bandage us. Do you see the, the contrast? Do you see the contrast? What did Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, look like? Sores, moth holes, unfaithfulness, all this rottenness that we saw in the previous chapter. And what is the cry of God? What is the cry of God? Let me heal you. Let me take care of you. Let me bandage you, as it says here. Let me take you in my arms. Come back to me, the faithful one. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. By the way, this verse is even quoted in the New Testament as prophetic to what Jesus is going to do. Now, isn't that amazing? Even in the unfaithfulness, God is going to show his hour over death. The the Easter story, so let us know. Let us pursue to know Yahweh. His going forth is established as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain watering uh, the earth. You all know what rain does. Thank God, we've been getting lots of rain. What does rain do? Brings back yeah, super blooms. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, the beauty of what is. Uh, Creation coming back to life. Verse 4 continues on. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loving kindness is like a morning cloud. Like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on them are like the light that goes forth. We don't get a lot of this here in Bakersfield, but, you know, uh, in certain places, you know, we have this thing called dew, right? You know, it's on the grass. What happens to it? You know, how long does it last? Very, very short, right? You know, as soon as the sun comes up, it evaporates, right? But it's that leftover moisture from the cool night before. It's the dew that is left on the ground, but it is very, very temporary. It is very, very uh, fleeting. Right. God, God says the same thing in the very next uh verse here. It, it is one of those uh verses that truly hits home. Not only do we see it in the the book of Hosea, we also see it in the in the New Testament as well. We see it in the uh the book of, of uh, uh first Samuel as well during the time of King Saul. For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Do you understand this amazing verse, this amazing phrase that that was first quoted during the time of King Saul? King Saul had been doing all these sacrifices. He'd been sacrificing animal after animal after animal. He had just won this huge, massive victory, but he had disobeyed God He'd kept the best things for himself and he kept the king alive. Instead of obeying what God had told him to do, he was doing the work of a priest as the king, which he wasn't supposed to do. And then King Samuel or Samuel had to come and rebuke him and said, You've been rejected from the kingship. God has rejected you. I don't know if you know certain people that they have the ability to be able to tie the lot they have the ability to be able to you know give a lot and thank god for people like that but do you understand the privilege of understanding this verse that god wants your heart your 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 life your heart is more valuable to him than any of your possessions that, that that god wants who you are he wants your obedience and of course that'll you know result in us wanting to you know tithe wanting to give away those things that we have but what does god want our obedience in fact that's exactly what he says here he delights in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of god rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have trespassed against this covenant, and there they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of workers of iniquity with a track of blood, and as raiders wait for a man, as a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed lewdness in the house of Israel. I have seen an appalling thing." Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Now we we understand why this uh, illustration in the very beginning of the book of Hosea's own family. A, A prophet who has to endure the unfaithfulness of his wife. And God having to deal with the unfaithfulness of a nation, an entire people, an entire group of people, in fact, all ten of the northern tribe. How, how patient is God? How faithful is God? By the way, you know, the same is true today. Is God still faithful to us, even as a nation? Could God have wiped us out a long time ago? But God is faithful. He continues to be faithful. Now, judgment's coming. We'll see that as we continue on. Last verse here in, in verse or chapter 6, it says, Also, O Judah, there is a harvest set for my people when I restore the fortunes of my people. The promise, again, if they repent. So who is Ephraim? Youngest son of Joseph. At the very end of Genesis chapter 48. The last time we're going to go there, okay? Last time we're going to go there. Genesis chapter 48, verse 17. We pick up again the story of the blessing of Ephraim. But Joseph saw that his father set his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it was displeasing in his sight. So he took hold of his father's hands to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. What is he saying to his own dad? You're wrong. You did it wrong, dad. You, you you bless them the wrong direction, right? You're you're so blind you can't see who's standing in front of you, right? Even though he knew what he was doing. Of course, this is the only time, and and it really shows us the humanity of Joseph. Of course, he he had his own faults as well. He wasn't this perfect guy that we always make him out to be. Verse nineteen, there it says. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I I know he also will become a people. He will also be great. Manasseh is going to be a a great nation. In fact, they're going to be one of the nations that are on the eastern side of the border of Israel, the the other side of the the Jordan uh, River. They're going to get a large portion of land. You can see that in the the maps of, of Israel. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become the fullness of nations. When you look at a map of the tribe of Ephraim, it is massive. It is huge. It is right there in the center of Israel. It is where Samaria is at, the capital of the northern kingdom, synonymous with Israel itself. And he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel, will be pronounced blessing, saying, God may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Then you put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your father. And I give you one portion more than your brother. Now, this also was very unusual because in the, in the Israelite culture, in the a lot of Middle Eastern cultures, uh, the 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 estate or the the will or or the amount of money isn't always divided evenly amongst all the kids. The oldest always gets a double portion, a, a larger portion. So if you had three kids, you would divide it by four. And the oldest would get two of those portions, and then the younger two would each get a portion apiece. Or, or, as in the case of Israel, he had 12 sons. So he divided it up 13 times. And, of course, if you look in the Old Testament, Levi doesn't get one of those portions. They become the priestly portion, and they're divided. So you still have 12 portions. uh, But Levi gets that, that priestly portion. And so, again, you'll never see a tribe of Joseph. You always see Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim being the greater, Ephraim being actually synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel, the one from it which every single king in the north is derived from, comes from. Truly a, a blessed nation, but unfortunately, what did they do with their blessing? Squander it. In fact, they even give it away to the Assyrian Empire. We see that in the very next chapter, in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they work falsehood. The thief enters in, raiders ransack outside, they, they do not say to their hearts that I remember all their evil, nor their deeds are all around them. they are before my faith. With their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes, with their deception, they're calling uh, good evil and evil good. In fact, the king is applauding their evil deeds. The king is glad when they commit. Evil deeds or evil acts. All their adulterers, uh, like an oven heated by the baker, who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, uh, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand uh, with the scoffer. By the way, that verse is also quoted in the new testament that that verse is also quoted at uh, the death of jesus christ as well did jesus also have to deal with unfaithful people that literally scoffed in his face and did he still die for them was he still faithful to them in fact, what did he say? And pastor said this on Friday. What, what did he say from the cross as those Roman soldiers nailed him to it? Father, forgive them, for they know not, know, know not what they do. This is the faithfulness to an unfaithful people. This reference to bread. I don't know if you, you knew you guys or, or uh, bakers or anything like that, this, this reference to uh, the bread here, it's in the old-fashioned oven, of course, you know. Uh, it's actually a, a wood-burning oven where where the wood would be put in, and, and you know, in a, 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 whether it's a pizza oven or a bread oven, when you put in the wood, you just don't put in the dough right away, do you? What do you have to do with the wood in that uh, kiln or in that uh, oven. What do you have to do? Yeah, You have to let it burn and then it becomes coals and then you move it around and you actually stir it up, right? And then you put it over to the side. And then when you put in the bread, it doesn't immediately just burn, right? Without fire or something like that. And this is exactly the reference to this verse four. In verse 6, it says, For their hearts are like an oven. As they draw near in their plotting, their anger smolders all night. And in the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. Hopefully, I'm sure none of you guys have ever done this awake all night stewing about how you're going to get back at someone or imagining how you're going to cause revenge upon someone else this this is exactly what they're doing How, how, how much more forgiving is god to us and how should we treat those that offend us all of them are like a hot oven they devour their judges, all their kings have fallen; none of them calls to me by the way, every single one of the northern kings, and you can read about this in first, second kings, first, and second chronicles. every single one of the northern kings, without exception, were unfaithful, were evil kings. Bad king again, fulfilling prophecy, verse eight of chapter seven. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim has become like a cake not turned. Okay, so what happened? Normally we don't, we, you have to think of it like a pancake, okay? What happens when you don't turn a pancake? Okay, It burns on one side, but what happens to the other side? Doesn't cook, right? It, it's completely raw. Would you ever want to eat that kind of a pancake or, or that kind of a cake? No, it's you know, raw on one side and burnt on the other, right? Totally unedible. This is what the picture here is of Ephraim. Strangers devour his power, yet he does not know it. Assyria is going to come in and literally destroy the northern kingdom. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not uh, know it. Okay, this is probably hopefully Maybe and I I look out at the audience and I see it you know the gray hair right does it sneak up on you it, it, I mean and that's unfortunately what sin does too and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows well we'll we'll talk about that later thank you yes yeah. verse ten so the pride of Israel answers against him. Yet they have not returned to Yahweh their God, nor have they sought him for all this. Despite the faithfulness of God, they continue to rebel against him. Despite his grace and mercy upon them as a nation, giving them chance after chance after chance, they rebelled against God. Of course, we've seen this many, many times in the Old Testament. And we've been walking through when we were in the the book of Isaiah when we were booking the Jeremiah, when we were in the book of Ezekiel, the common name was a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. That pride that they had of one, not wanting to obey God. First Kings chapter 12, verse 25. After the dividing of this kingdom, after King Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king in the south in Jerusalem. And a guy by the name of Jeroboam becomes king in the north. The only reason why I can remember that is because they rhyme. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, okay? Otherwise, I would forget, okay? So Jeroboam's in the north. He now uh, has the kingship over ten of the tribes. And he realizes after seceding from uh, Jerusalem and after seceding from uh, the king himself, I have to keep my kingdom. I have to somehow devise a way so that uh, they will not come back. You see, God had designed it so that there would be the certain feast days, certain times of the year. In fact, three different times of the year where the nation of Israel was supposed to come to Jerusalem and we're supposed to worship God. It was a time of of reunification despite the fact that they they didn't understand that it was it was meant to reunify. It's kind of like, you know, family gatherings at Christmas and Easter, right? You know, it's meant to bring the family together. So in 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. And he he went out from there and built Pinuel, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So what what is his idea here, this this thought that he gets? It's a very evil thought that he gets, uh, satanic in in its origins. He says, well, I have to figure out a way so that when they go back at the time of Passover, when they, when they go back at the time of Yom Kippur, when they go back during the fall feast, when, when they go back to Jerusalem and, and they're going to see their friends, they're going to see their They're people that they know, and they're going to want to return back to the kingdom. They're going to want to reunify again, right? Especially if they worship the one true God. So he devises up this plan, verse 28. So the king took counsel. And by the way, Jeroboam was from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, Jeroboam establishes, The northern kingdom in uh, the tribe of Ephraim being the the greatest of the tribes in the north. So the king took counsel and he made two golden calves. Where have you heard that before? Nothing new underneath the sun. Two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too far. Okay, it's too far of a journey for you to do this. You you can see it, right? Behold your gods O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. By that's that's the same exact thing that Aaron said to the people. By the way, except for he only made one. Okay, he only made one. He set one in Bethel. By the definition, Bethel means house of God, and he put one up in Dan. He put ones up to the north and one in the central region. And he says, these are your gods. You don't got to travel as far now. You can, you can go and worship at these golden calves. Even Aaron made one, right? All, all you have to do is worship here. And what does it now do to the, now the to tra- to trajectory of the nation of Israel? It puts their heart on foreign gods, on gods that aren't faithful to them. on on idols that now they commit adultery with against god we'll finish out chapter 7 book of hosea and by the way i I encourage you read the rest of that chapter that's uh, first kings chapter 12 and also genesis chapter 48 if you want to read the rest of those stories ending it here tonight in chapter 7 of hosea so Ephraim has become like a silly dove Without a heart of wisdom they they call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. You've seen the doves, right you've seen the pigeons. What do they do? They're oblivious most of the time, right what are they doing they're They're picking and you know fluttering around and 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 you know they they're big huge groups and they they're silly in a lot of the ways right they're oblivious they're very easy pickings. Same thing with the nation of Israel, Ephraim. They go to Egypt, try to make an alliance. They go to Assyria, trying to make an alliance everywhere except for God. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the report of their congregation. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have transgressed against me. And I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Does God want them to come back? Does God constantly reach out to them? But they always turn their heart against them. They do not cry out to me in their heart. When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they gather together as sojourners. They depart from me. Although I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me how adulterous is this how rebellious is this they turn but not upward highlight that phrase underline that phrase they turn everywhere except for where up they look all around for help except for up where our help comes from by the way the psalms say right (laughs) They're like a deceitful bow. D- do you know what that means? What, what is a bow for? A bow is meant to be accurate. A bow is meant to hurt something else. Exactly. It, it's similar to a, you know a gun, right? It, actually, it can cause more harm to the person holding it than the person on the other end. If you have a deceitful bow or deceitful gun, because actually you can even be killed by a bow that is deceitful. If it breaks or or something happens to it, it actually can cause harm to you. And, And this is the comparison as we see here to Israel and Ephraim. They are a deceitful bow. We'll talk about this more next week. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the indignation of their tongue. This will be their scoffing. In the land of Egypt, and even Egypt, their enemies will laugh at them. So, next week, we'll pick up the rest of this amazing uh, story in the book of Hosea. Hopefully, the understanding here is, and thank God there's so much in terms of the history of the Bible, but the application is when are we supposed to be faithful? All the time. Don't don't blame it on the other person. It's so easy to say, well, they're unfaithful to me. They lied to me. They did this to me. I can do it back to them. No. Would God ever do that to us? No. So, Father, tonight as we approach this amazing section, as we go our separate ways, as we hopefully even reflect on this, maybe later on tonight or throughout this week, Lord, And we see the unfaithfulness of people all around us, just as in the time of of the writing of this book. The comparison of unfaithfulness to adultery, the idolatry to adultery, and turning my back upon God, and and literally um, prostituting ourselves out to other things, rather than being faithful to the one God. Yet you constantly reach out to us. You constantly pull us back. You you constantly call us to repent and come back to you, Lord. We are so grateful for your faithfulness. We are so faithful for your work on the cross. We're so faithful to what you are. So grateful for what you did to us in your faithfulness to a people that rejected you. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to really have our eyes open to that and help us to be grateful for it. And then help us in in response to be obedient and to do the same with those around us, to show your love, your faithfulness, your, your desire and grace to reach out to those that they themselves are unfaithful. They themselves are enemies of you. And they, too, are loved by you. They, too, need to be drawn to you. And so, Lord, as we read the rest of the book of Hosea in the, in the coming weeks, Lord, as maybe we read it throughout this week or, or you know, the other parts of the, the Bible where we see uh, your faithfulness portrayed in clear clear form, Lord, help us desire that for ourselves. Help us desire that for ourselves. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, a people that don't deserve it. So we love you, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here.